0: Welcome to Acme Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of
1: ACME.
2: Hi, everyone. Uh, My name's Sean. I work in public programs here at ACME, and I'd like to welcome you all to Studio One tonight uh, for Replay, which is our new series of events curated by ACME and Freeplay and presented in association with Film Victoria. Uh, Now, in tonight's Replay session titled Postcards from Imaginary Worlds, uh, we're going to be exploring a range of imaginary realms and simulated environments. ...in a quest to better understand the multitude of uh, game worlds that many of us spend time in... ...and how we engage with those game spaces during our time there. Uh, Chairing this evening's uh, event will be academic, critic and cultural commentator Dan Golding. Uh, This is Dan's second um, time in the replay studio. Uh, Currently undertaking a PhD in in the School of Culture and Communications at the University of Melbourne. Dan also tutors and lectures in the field of cinema, culture, video games and digital media... And as a critic, writes commentary on video games and gaming culture for crikey.com.au. He also regularly writes for Hyper magazine and has also been published in PC Powerplay, The Conversation, and Kill Your Darlings. Uh, tonight, Dan will be joined by comedian and dungeon master Ben McKenzie, games journalist Brendan Keogh, and transmedia writer and designer Christy Dina. Uh, we're also pleased to welcome Zeal to the studio tonight, who you, many of you would have just heard as you made your way in. Um, he'll be entertaining us throughout the night with a mix of music and video. Um, so, without further ado, please join me in welcoming tonight's chair, Dan, as well as our panel members, Ben, Brendan, and Christy, and audiovisual guest, Zeal.
3: Thanks very much, Sean. Um, so, welcome to the third of these um, replay events here at Acme. Um So tonight, um, as uh, we've um, uh, already heard, we'll be talking about um, uh, imaginary worlds, games and the, the worlds, the universes, the spaces that they create. Um, so I mean, for, for me, I think by way of introduction, I, I think that it's, it's, it's really um, the spaces of games that give uh, video games their texture and sort of their, their unique qualities. Um, my research and uh, my academic research is is really largely centered on this, so hopefully for, for me for me this evening it 'll be a really interesting night um, and for all of the the speakers as well so we 're going to basically take a, a sampling uh, of game worlds um, and sort of you know try and, and, and get it at what makes them tick, what makes them work, um, how we can understand them but but equally more than that, hopefully um, you know, get at what we um, you know what we—the the pleasure that we find in, in these in these worlds, in these spaces, and these spaces—and maybe you know, sort of assemble some um, uh, postcards of, of our own um, as, as we go through the night. So we're we're sort of going to break it up by by each panel member and sort of focus on on each of them in turn. Uh, and at the end, we'll have a, a bit of a, an audience Q and A as well. So um, I think perhaps I'll I'll, um, just introduce the the panel with a a little bit more depth, so so I'll go to Ben, um, closest to me first. So Ben McKenzie is, um, it's an amazing array of adjectives, Um, is an (laughs) (laughs) actor, no, 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 I I think it's a necessary part of any event you're involved in, Um, an actor, comedian, writer, feminist, rogue nerd, and ginger, Um, as, as you can all see. Um, he's written, performed and, produ- uh, performed and produced uh, comedy and theatre for over a decade. Um, specifically, you, some of you may- might know him from the- his museum comedy tours or um, the Dungeon Crawl uh, series, which is um, a very long-running comedy series, but he's also appeared in the um, ABC TV series The Bazeera Project uh, and Woodley as well, and he's also Freeplay's production manager for this year. Um, so, yeah, terrific. Uh, then uh, sitting next to him, we have Christy Dina, um, who is uh, the director of Universe Creation <laughs> 101, <laughs> um, and uh, where she develops um, her own projects and consults on uh, other cross and transmedia projects as well. Uh, and she's working on an online comedy drama, uh, which is called Authentic in All Caps, which has just been nominated for a Best Writing Award at the Free Play Awards. Um, so you'll have to all wish her luck for that as well this weekend. <laughs> uh, and Christy also wrote a PhD on transmedia practice. Um, uh, and she also works on um, alternate reality games as well, which I think will give a, a, a really interesting insight um, for the panel this evening. And finally, at the end, we have Brendan Keogh, uh, who's writing his PhD at RMIT. Um, here in Melbourne, uh, which is focused um, sort of on uh, researching the, um, how we experience and understand um, video game play, um, especially, and sort of forwarding a, a video game criticism that, that traces the networks, the relationships between the player and the gamers. Yeah. Um, he's also a freelance... I'll ri- use that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's also a freelance writer for... Um, far too many outlets, I'm constantly jealous, Um, (laughs) for for Kill Screen, Hyper Magazine, Edge, Ars Technica, Paste, Games on Net, etc. And he also created and ran the amazing blog Towards Dawn, uh, which hopefully we'll we'll hear a bit about tonight. So first of all, I think uh, we will hear from from Ben McKenzie first, if we can, um, who's going to talk us through a bit of role-playing and virtual worlds.
4: So um, whenever I think about imaginary worlds, I, I think about role-playing games primarily because that's, those are the sort of games I spent the most time playing. And not just video games, um, because video game role-playing games have their roots in pen and paper, traditional tabletop role-playing games. And it's not just about the... Well, in a paper role-playing game, it's not about a world that you can see or interact with directly. It's a world that you imagine that is conjured up by the supporting materials that you get through the game, um, which I brought some in, um, so this, that box on the end there, this is, um, this is, this is for reals, uh, this is the Planescape <laughs> campaign setting from the early 90s, um, if you don't know it you may have played Planescape Torment, the, um, the computer game, and Planescape is, uh, it's an unusual Dungeons and Dragons world, so Dungeons and Dragons if you're not, how many people here have played Dungeons and Dragons? Make some noise. <laughs> yeah, okay, Great. a few of you. So many of you know, uh, if you don't know, normally Dungeons & Dragons is set in what is usually described as a magical medieval Europe. So it's basically medi- medieval Europe, but with dragons and spells and slightly less sexism um, <laughs> and a lot more racism. But um, but that's, uh, that's beside the point. Uh, but Planescape is unusual in that Uh, It was designed to take a whole bunch of worlds that already existed that were all basically variations on the the magical medieval Europe paradigm uh, and try and make them all work together along with the cosmology that had been worked out for Dungeons & Dragons, this idea that there are other planes of existence where uh, all these creatures that you fight actually come from. Like, it's not enough that you fight like a, a water elemental. That water elemental's got to live somewhere when you're not summoning it to attack your enemies. Right? So that's what Planescape is all about. And the amount of material in here to give you an idea of how that world works and what it's like is huge. So ooh, we're going to be on the screen. That's exciting. So, um, for example, this is a poster. Here we go. This is the, the Outlands. So in the game, um, the Outlands is like this weird disc all right, of places where uh, at the edge of it around the circle are these portal towns that lead into the various planes of existence. And in the middle, there's this massive spire. And at the top of the spire, which is actually supposed to be infinite in length, but at the top of the spire, you can see up here, there's a little a ring, right? Um, it's an infinite spire that has a top. I know, I know. <laughs> it's cosmology. It doesn't have to make sense. Um, but this is a sigil or sigil, depending on where you're from and uh, that is the city of doors so it's a city where you can go there and there's doorways from there to pretty much any place in all the myriad planes. and all of these places like these worlds these planes of existence sigil itself and then all of the other campaign worlds that sort of link into this they all have maps and some of the maps are way bigger than this Um, and it's crazy there's heaps of maps in here Uh, now I've got a do you want to you can play with that Um, so there's heaps this is like map of the outer planes, I won't go through all of these, there's heaps of them, but you get the idea. So there's heaps of maps in here, and every one of these um, campaign settings comes with all these maps and supporting materials that helps create this imaginary world that you then engage with with your imagination, because you don't have a 3D representation of it to play in. And when video games came along uh, and sort of started to get into that same space, um, they used a lot of the same tricks so uh, for example the really early role-playing and adventure games obviously didn't have any images they only had text uh, and so they looked a little bit like this Um, this is a this is not actually the official map Uh, this is a player generated map from the Zork users group um, for Zork 1 which is one of the really early and famous uh, text adventure games and I've got a box full of them here so this is this is the uh, Lost Treasures of Infocoms. This was a, a collection of Infocom text adventures published in about 1991, I think, maybe 92. I think that's about right. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. Um, but it comes with reproductions of the stuff that you would have got in the original games, which is kind of cool. So again, you get all these little artefacts. Because all you get on the screen is text describing things, they give you these little bits and pieces to say, well, this is a real world. This is how this imaginary world works. Yeah, feelies. So then we've got, this is like... I'm holding it upside down. That's the um, the parchment from Zork Zero, so it's like it's like being given a a bit. Um, I'll find because one of my uh, here's so there is a map for Zork One. I'm going to get these all out of order, which will annoy the slightly obsessive side of me, but that's okay. Um, But I've got to find my favourite one because my favourite text adventure is by far and away The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah, there's floppy disks in here. It comes in both sizes. No, I can't, I can't find it. But there's all, these, so there's all these different things. So like this is like from the Guild of Cartographers and all that. So there's all the bits in here for all these different games to so really make it feel real. And that didn't stop just because people uh, could put images into video games because um, once you started to get a visual representation of a world, you started to get things like the early roguelike uh, role-playing games, which uh, were great, but very limited, obviously, in what they could show you. And this was sort of the start, I think, of where you didn't get so much a whole world as you got a series of bits of a world, which is what we're used to in games where you don't expect to see a complete world, like in something like Mario Brothers or or any of those uh, kind of puzzle games or, um, uh, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Platform games. Uh, You get get discrete levels. And even in the early sort of uh, first-person shooters, it felt very much like, okay, here's a level, uh, so it's a bit of a world, and then I go to the next one. And they didn't necessarily add up to a complete world that you could engage with. Um, this is my favourite roguelike game. This is uh, Ragnarok, which uh, was developed in the mid-90s. Um, again, it looks very similar, and, and it's not an in-depth graphical representation, but the world is continuous in this one. So you don't go from one room to another. There's a big map um, it doesn't show you the whole map at the same time, but it is uh, a whole world that you can explore and go into various buildings. Uh, and then uh, when Dungeons & Dragons started to really take off as a computer game, you got stuff like this. And again, you only see a bit of the world at a time. This is from Curse of the Azure Bonds, which is one of the early uh, D&D video games. This is um, Eye of the Beholder. Yeah, Eye of the Beholder. Terrible. Um, but <laughs> but uh, there were three games like this. And again, this is... Uh, they're showing you bits of the world. They were, sometimes these games would have a map like of the whole world, but you couldn't really just wander around and look at stuff. You'd go into a dungeon, so you'd only see like a little square of the dungeon and turn around and see another square. So these all came with maps. Um, but then there are some worlds that really do feel like a, a complete world from what you get in the game. So this is another world which you can play downstairs in, um, in Game Masters. And uh, it's, a game, it's a sci-fi game, basically, where you are accidentally transported to another world, who'd have thought it, and there's all these weird aliens and creatures there and it feels like this weird other planet. Like, it's all, again, you only see it a screen at a time, but it all does seem to make sense. It feels like a continuous world. Uh, Then you, this is Fallout 2, um, which some of you may have played, uh, which looks very different to Fallout 3, uh, (laughs) which is a bit fancier, but they um, developed another kind of world where, again, it's kind of contiguous and the Fallout games are interesting, I think, because they use the trick of taking the real world and then altering it to make it different. So um, in the case of depending which game you 're playing in, in Fallout three you 're wandering around the capital wasteland, which is basically Washington and that area of America. Uh, but totally destroyed, and with this sort of weird 50s retro futurism going on, which is great, and like nuclear powered cars broken down by the side of the road and uh, in fact, if you wander around the central part of Washington in Fallout Three, you can see all the museums that are really there, but they 're all fallen to bits, and there 's these weird ghouls living in them and monsters roaming around the ruins. Um, but it feels like a real world, particularly if you 've ever been. To Washington, I had a friend who worked there for a while, and he said he found it really hard to play that part of the game because he'd been that, been there, like working there, getting the train there, and then he's playing it in the game. And it's like I know where that is. It's not normally destroyed, though. So, <laughs> and that a bit hard to take. Um, this is Bioshock. Um, I like one of the things I like about Bioshock is that while well, it is quite enclosed, and there's bits of it that feel like a level it all does feel like it makes sense. The world of Rapture, which is a city built under the sea, if you haven't played the game, all feels like it was built as a city and it was planned. It's got, a, it's got a, an art style that kind of matches it, feels like a complete world. It feels like a completely weird world that's gone horribly wrong, but um, you're wandering around it and you feel, oh, yeah, this is weird. This is different to my usual experience, and it, it gives you that uh, immersive experience. And this is, a, this is a screenshot from Mass Effect. Um, and Mass Effect, I, I put this in here because uh, I think Mass Effect is an interesting case too because it tries to build a whole galaxy rather than a world. And as a result, you end up with bits of worlds here and there. And, and politically and narratively, it feels like a world. But the imaginary world of each planet that you visit it's a bit like Star Wars. You know, you go to this planet, this is the planet where it's all ice. And you go to this planet, it's a bit, this is the planet where it's all desert. Um, and this is the planet where everything's radioactive or whatever. And you only get to visit certain little points on each planet. And also you can visit heaps of planets. But you can't land on most of them, so you don't know what they're like. So it's a, it's a sort of a fragmented world, I think. Which makes sense, because it's uh, certainly by the time of Mass Effect 3, and this screenshot's from Mass Effect 2, um, certainly by the time Mass Effect 3, it, it's a war story, so you don't necessarily get to experience a whole world at that point. I won't show you the map for this, but this was just an example of uh, even when you had graphical games back in the, um, as what we sometimes uh, imaginatively call the big box era, uh, you did get stuff in your box with your game. And so even though you had graphics in the game and you could see things, uh, you would get a map to show you what the world looked like, just to add to that experience. It's not particularly good map for a uh, legacy game. That's all right, and it comes with oh look at that, it comes with a, a poster for another game on the back. <laughs> Why would I stick that on my wall? Uh, all right, so um, those are some games that I've showed you pictures from. But um, I really like the immersive games where you get to wander around a world, and uh, Fallout 3 is one of those. There's an interesting uh, essay in, in one of the later. Dungeons & Dragons, Dungeon Masters guides, where they talk about how you can categorise players based on what they want to do and what they enjoy. And the category that... I, I'm a bit of multiple personality when it comes to that. I like to do all kinds of things. I'm a bit of an actor. I like to really get into the character. Um, I like to portray... I like to get into the storyline as well. But I'm also an explorer. I love to get out there and see the whole world. And Fallout 3 was an amazing game for that. There's so much stuff. There's this massive map of the Capital Wasteland. And if you just go for walks, like I would just get out and just walk for ages. And we'll hear more about that in a different context (laughs) from you, Brendan. But but I would walk for ages just to find that point on the map that I hadn't seen yet. And then a blip would come up on the thing. It's like, oh, there's something something nearby here. I'm going to go and I'd find like a hotel abandoned right near the edge of the map down the bottom left. This is the most memorable one I just found by walking. Where you go inside and there's this sort of mini quest line. It's basically someone in there tried to summon Cthulhu and it all went horribly wrong. And he's like, what is this doing Fallout? This is crazy. Um, But it was a lot of fun.
5: Did you find Bethesda Studios? Uh, I
4: I know, I didn't. I heard that they're in there somewhere, but I didn't find them. I found the Nuka-Cola factory Mm. uh, and several other things, but no, I still still haven't found everything in that game.
5: So the developers who make the game, their studio is in the game, all destroyed. So it's this nice (laughs) meta... They would have been well, making I'm it on computers it's running, running on so.
3: Valves, <laughs> yeah. retro um, yeah. And so, did you have a similar experience with Skyrim?
4: Perhaps? I did have a similar experience <laughs> in Skyrim. Um, I'm still having a similar experience in Skyrim. I haven't finished. And Skyrim also, Skyrim does come with a map, uh, which is in there. But I won't, I won't show you that. Mm-hmm. I, I, think we would better. Why don't I just play some Skyrim? Let's do that. <laughs> um, I, I think that'll be good. So, um, look, here's one I prepared earlier. Um, <laughs> Now, I don't want to alarm anyone, uh, but we were talking about this before we started, and it occurred to me only as I sat down to do this that, oh, you're all going to be watching me play a video game. That's slightly weird, Uh, but I think it's going to be worthwhile. Also, I've just encountered a dragon, so don't freak (laughs) out. It might kill me. Uh, I'm not necessarily well prepared. So this is Skyrim. Uh, We're in the land of Skyrim, which is largely ice and snow, but at the moment, I'm in the tundra, and... One of the things that's great about Skyrim and a lot of these open world games is it's not just the world itself that immerses you, it's the things that you can see and do. I might put that in, there we go, that's a bit better for the viewers at home. I hope none of you get motion sickness. Uh, I have a few friends who can't play anything in the first person because it freaks them out. So you can see that if I just wander around, this is a little abandoned camp. I say abandoned, it's abandoned because when I was getting ready I killed everyone who was in it. Um, LAUGHTER they were bandits, they attacked me first. Uh, that, the ethics of that is a discussion for another panel. But, um, <laughs> but as you can see, there's just stuff happening in the world around you. For starters, it's very beautiful, although looking at those screenshots from that website mm-hmm. that were all taken on PCs that have really high-end graphics cards and all these mods to do HD textures, I feel a little bit left out on my Xbox, but never mind. Um, so you can see there's stuff happening. These are, these are giants, so if you haven't played the game, there are giants that just wander around. Um, they herd mammoths. It's never really explored why. They don't very, seem to eat the mammoths. They're very just,
3: persuasively. They just walk into them. They're just friendly yeah. with the <laughs> mammoths. I think he's kind of stuck on the mammoth. Yeah. <laughs> Normally
4: they, they walk around a bit more, but that's okay. That's we'll, go, we'll go for a bit of exploring. Um, so you can see, and there's lots of things to interact with in the environment, so it's not just that it looks pretty realistic, uh, even on the Xbox, but also that there's things in the environment to play with. If I wander around here somewhere, I will find... Oh, look. Somebody's dropped a mace. Hmm. And another... M- oh, I probably killed some people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let's not think about that too much. Uh, but we can go up into the hills. And the, um, the environment sort of shifts as you go. It's, Skyrim's interesting in that it has a, a nice mix between realistic and really fantasy environments. So this is not unrealistic sort of tundra leading into, that's my follower, don't get, don't get afraid. Um, this is a realistic sort of tundra leading into icy snow-capped mountains, uh, low mountains in this case, and just keep wandering up. Um, and bears, uh, oh, okay, let's not fight the bear, uh, that might take a while. But what I will do is I'll show you a fantasy environment we can load up um, while I'm doing that. If you want to talk while it loads, because it is might take a little while.
3: So. <clears throat> Maybe you can talk a little bit more about the while it's loading the design of of the game and I mean it's it's ex- extraordinarily large, isn't it?
4: Yeah, it's a, it's a huge world and the again the interesting one of the interesting things about it is it's part of an even larger world that has mm. been designed for the Elder Scrolls series of games. So the world of Tamriel is made up of all these different nations and Skyrim is the northern kind of Viking nation where mm. all these the Nords live. They're called Nords. Mm. Um, they're basically really. Uh, pale-skinned human beings who are really mm. racist and angry. Um, so I can I can kind of identify with some of that because uh, <laughs> I'm quite pale-skinned. But yeah, and it's a, it's a massive world and it's broken up. In fact, what I'll, I should show you the um, I'll show you the map <laughs> before I get <laughs> eaten by a bear. Um, so this is the map of Skyrim, and uh, so we're here. The most useless map ever. Who, who wants clouds on this their map, map <laughs> they're trying to find <laughs> the way Look, like, it's like I'm flying. <laughs> it's beautiful, but as a map, it's very impractical. Perhaps not the most functional map, but it is beautiful. <laughs> and it, I like the fact that it's, it's in 3D, so you, you, you can see where the mountains are. Yeah. Um, so I'm near, I'm near a few things. You can see these, these places on the map, the dots, or the, the little icons, they're places that I've been uh, or know about in some cases and haven't yet been. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see that it's pretty... Can you zoom out? Yes. You can zoom out a bit. You can see just how big it is. Um, again, you can't, you're right though. You can't really see anything but clouds, can you? Um, I think that's because the brightness has turned up a bit. But you can see there's all these places and the ones that are white icons as opposed to black icons are places that I've been. And there's still a lot more places that I haven't mm. been. So again, like in Fallout 3, if I just go wandering uh, when I'm not being attacked by a bear, then uh, I can just find places mm. that... I would never have found that like, there's a, um, up here, there's, is that the one? There's a, I think that's it. There's a, um, there's a pirate ship. And I just found it by leaving the city and walking down the coast. Mm. And there's a pirate ship and there was nobody on deck. So I thought, oh, I'll thought, i go and check it out. And as soon as I got on deck, some pirates came out of the pirate ship and attacked me. And I'm like, well, I, I would never have found this. And it feels like a world that has a lot going on, even mm. when you're not there. Yeah. And people respond. It's, One of the other great things is when you get attacked by a dragon, particularly if you're in a town, um, because a large part of the storyline is that the dragons are returning after having not been in the world for many, many years, perhaps centuries, I think. Um, Then when they attack, everyone just bands together to fight the dragon. Like, if you're out in the fields and there's a couple of uh, giants and a mammoth, they'll fight the dragon. Uh, And if you're in a town, all the people will run out of their stores and start throwing spells and firing arrows at the dragon. I'm probably getting eaten because, you know, they're not the hero of the game. You are. Um, How important
3: is it that the world seems disinterested in you? Well,
4: that's an interesting way to put it, that it's disinterested. Because uh, they do a lot of work. Um, uh, I think it, it, people have written about the fact that most video games uh, really do a lot of work to make you feel special, like mm. you are mm. special. Mm. And that is an interesting thing about Skyrim in that you get the feeling that the people in the game are getting along with their lives even when you're not around. Mm. But at the same time, as soon as you talk to anyone who's a significant character, who has something to do with the plot, they'll always refer to the fact that you're the dragonborn, the chosen one, um, that's gonna come and save us from the dragons. Mm. Uh, But all the other people will just, you know, you walk past people and and they'll just say random things. But a lot Mm. of the random things are generated based on who you are and what skills you have. So even that reinforces that idea that while they might not know you, what you're doing in the game has this massive impact and, again, mm. reinforces that you and this world are kind of in- inextricably linked. Mm. Yeah.
3: We might have to uh, move on. That's probably a good point. Thanks very much, Ben. So mm. we'll mic for over to uh, another song, um, another piece by seal.
1: Rapid fire questions raised Speaking in tongues, walking into the light We found those douchebags, flying kites Blue flash flickers, switchblades, slides, Camera phones, late night knife fights The lights of the skies are just spots now, eyes But they still light up the sky Light up the sky
3: So, Christy, um, take it away. Go, <laughs> Go yes, ahead. okay.
0: Um, yes, yeah, so with my talk, uh, when um, I was asked to, to do this, one of the things Paul said was, that can you talk about a pervasive game? Um, and so... Ah, oh, Yeah, I swapped them. Got <laughs> <laughs> to you keep your eye on it, yeah. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so today I'll be actually talking about an experience going through a pervasive game. Um, but... I need to start a bit at the beginning. That's, that's me there with my brother. And um, as a kid, like many kids, I always wanted to be a spy. Um, and one thing I used to do in my primary school years was I used to um, climb up to the roof of the house um, and take photos of cars as they were driving by and note down the number plate, <laughs> just in case they were doing something naughty. Um, and... Shift to a few years later, um, I then um, got into the security area and I got certified with um, baton and handcuffs, um, taking down psychotic um, patients, as well as having my gun license. And I used to go to the firing range each week and um, and do pract- target practice with undercover cops. Um, so, for me, it was a case of, like, how can I really feel as if I'm a spy? You're looking scared. No, I... Yeah.
4: <laughs> you actually are a spy. Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: and then... Um, this will probably get me in trouble saying this, but um, uh, so one time I was working at Miss Shop. This is when I was at, um, uh, doing my undergraduate, and I decided that I'd figure out all the gaps in their security system. Um, <laughs> so I ended up um, orchestrating a theft... Of a lot of stuff, and then I handed in the report to the security personnel, citing all of the flaws in their system. Um, so yeah, Sorry. so you know, I sort of took my um, my approach pretty seriously. Um, so come to the more recent uh, day here. One uh, well, fairly recently, uh, I had an invite that I saw. I was at my computer. There's postcards from from here. Um, and here was a, oh, crap, here's an um, invite that you can't read, obviously, um, the, to the City Spies game of urban espionage that Harry was uh, running. Where are you, Harry? There you are. Come <laughs> on. Yep. Um, and, so, and so, yeah, so I'll just, I'll just read it out. Um, a free street game about stealing secrets and hiding in plain sight. Um, and, you know, some of the instructions are, you know, you could keep a, a timekeeping device um, on you, um, come with a sense of adventure. Uh, and part of the instructions with, the, with your clothes was, you know, make sure you dress um, inconspicuously and comfortably, you know, for the day. Um, and so, yes, I thought, right, city spies, I'm right on it. Uh, but then, usually when people are preparing to um, do a sort of uh, spy work or something like that in a video game, you've got this sort of experience. Um, (laughs) You're passing around, you've got all your screens. Oh, we have no phone. You
1: probably want to
4: We're not watching you. <laughs> oh, I love this bit of the game. I always spend hours doing this.
0: <laughs> so yeah, you can customize your your hair, obviously. Do you take ages with your beard?
4: <laughs> do I take ages with my beard? Yeah, yes. Yes. Okay. Yes, that's except the best I. Spy beard. That's why I started oh, playing I female that. characters because uh, they don't. They, like you don't need to do facial hair. Yep. What I get this. beard. beards. Spy beard. yeah. It's I always hate it when you can't get sideburns in a game. I <laughs> only do other kinds of facial hair. Because I usually have sideburns. This beard's recent.
0: So obviously, yeah, you can get your uh, appearance going to look very spidey.
4: <laughs> <That's> inconspicuous. Inconspicuous.
0: <laughs> That's what you can do in games. But then when it comes to real world games, it's, it's a bit different. Um, it involves, for instance... Let me see. Me drying my hair before I get there. Washing my (laughs) teeth. And uh, doing all of these normal grooming things. Now, the thing was with the shoes is that you've got to be comfortable. I don't know what I'm going to be doing. I'm probably going to be running. So don't wear heels. Spies don't wear heels, do they? Um, And I had to make sure I tied up all of my shoes with double knots in case, you know, so they didn't actually... um, Um, fall apart while I'm um, on the case as well and I had other issues like should I wear perfume or not would a spy wear perfume and I I, and I actually thought no I no I can't wear perfume because people you know would they remember the scent and all that sort of stuff I want to you know I want to be invisible and um, as well as making sure that my Dishwasher was loaded, um, just the mundane things of life, and then locking the door, as I believe, and then uh, just walking down a street, a suburban street, quietly by myself, which is very different to the other times. Hmm? No zombies? No zombies. No nothing. No guns? No, but I was a
1: spy. No one (laughs) knew.
0: And then, of course, um, there's the uh, preparation... Um, of course, I just got the train there, about to swipe my Mikey. The electronics were down. Perfect. I would not be... I would have no digital footprint about where I was going. I was
4: very happy with this. I wouldn't give that information to the police. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, of course, in my mode, I was thinking about things. It's like, right, payphone over there. If I need to make an anonymous call, I'll be tracked from my mobile. I can utilise that. Um, and then, of course, we've got the... Um, the junk food machines in which if I need to MacGyver a bomb I can, <laughs> I don't know how to but they're there in case
4: I need to So this is taking a turn <laughs>
0: <laughs> And of course I was thinking how am I to take a photo of uh, the people, the passengers actually in the train um, and as any good try hard spy knows use reflections <laughs> okay. So I waited until we were actually underground and then took a photo of the reflections Um, I seem to be going well with my spy day so far. Um, And then as we move forward into the day, we move forward, yes. Uh, So when I actually got to Acme in the city, I found myself just thinking again about the fact that I loved um, collecting number plates and I just could not help taking a few um, photographs of cars and their number plates as we're going by. Um, And then when I arrived there, of course, yay, of course, there are police there. There is bucket loads of police there for some reason. Um, now, this is something that I found always happens with um, the alternate reality games and that that I've worked on. You get into this state of mind where everything is meaningful and everything um, becomes part of the world. Uh, and there's always something freaky that happens. So, for instance, you know, I'm turning up to do this spy gig and, of course, there's going to be heaps of police there. Um, I to, um, I created an alternate reality game a few years ago for the Australian Film Television and Radio School and we did it at a resort in which I did things like I put police tape around the, the scene of the crime and, and um, um, you know, created all these crime scenes in the rooms of, of the actual resort and everything. And there were normal people there as well. So it was a bit of a a worry with that. Um, But what happened was the players were so immersed and took on the world so much um, that they didn't want to um, cross the police line the place that I had hidden clues. Um, and so, yeah, and so with that, we also had um, the um, fire, fire brigade actually turn up during the alternate reality game, which freaked me out because um, I thought, oh, no, you know, there's a whole lot of trouble that's happening and it's my fault. It's just a game. Um, but, yeah, and so, of course, as soon as I arrive, there's police there and there's police everywhere. So that's, that's how we roll in the uh, spy world, obviously. And the other thing was there was a lot of um, buskers and entertainers. And so I immediately thought, right, perfect. When everyone is distracted, that's when you can take photos of the crowd. That's when you can actually note the people that are around there. Um, and so I did that. And then, of course, it was time to meet with my fellow spies. Um, and this, is, this can be quite an exciting thing, usually, in games. But instead, yes, I had that. I just turned (laughs) up and there was no one there. (laughs) And I thought, well, um, perhaps I've got the wrong location. Um, and so I then realised that the, the name of the location um, is not listed anywhere at ACME. It's not in any of the maps or any of the guides, so I just went to the ACME centre and got my ticket and went and asked them, you know, is this, is this the right place? And the lady said, well, there's nothing on the maps, but it looks as if it is. Um, so, yes. So it turned out I went back and everyone was there suddenly. Um, and so, yes, that was the right location, and, and it was now time to be briefed as to the actual game and what will happen. And this is when um, Harry um, passed out these, these cards in which these are our bases, um, that each each one of us, we went into teams, um, and with these cards, we would have inside them uh, secrets that we were, we were actually um, hiding. So the secrets are represented by Time magazines. Um, and so we would put all the Time magazines into all of these um, these folders and it was then our job to uh, run around and hide our secrets and then try and f- steal them from other people. But these are the actual rules um, that's that's here of Spies by Night, which is an adaptation of Pippa? Pippa Johnson. Pippa Johnson, yep, uh, the, potato, the potato gate, yep. Um, and so here, um, as you can see with the rules of the game, Basically, you want to, we want to have as many, that, you know, to win is, is to have the, as many secrets as you can. The idea is that we had to hide all of these bases in um, all around Federation Square uh, with all of their secrets in them. And then when we went to actually go and steal uh, the secrets from other people, the, the condition was that we had to have sort of the role, the role of the, uh, the Time magazine and, you know, two people per, per one, and then you just um, secretly walk. Secretly walk. Kind of. Yeah, not so secretly walk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was pretty obvious. Um, and so then, you, of course, you have to have all these strategies in there as well. So, this is where it changed for me. Obviously, the, you know, the whole experience changed for me. This is um, what um, Craig Lindley um, talks about in terms of gameplay schemas. Um, I was coming in with a certain um, expectation and uh, an idea about a pervasive game, which is you know, pretty much governed from uh, my experiences with alternate reality games and things like that, where it's set in the real world, you're playing yourself and you're doing all of these things. Now, the difference here, obviously, with this, um, with this pervasive game, this street game, was that suddenly we had all of these representations of things. You know, the Time magazine represents... Um, secrets, as opposed to actually being secrets and things like that, um, and so that that, mean, that that meant I had to you know shift the way I approached it and it 's something that um, once again that Craig Lindley talks about in terms of um, inter- interaction semantics that um, you know you 've got uh, moving a joystick or uh, uh, playing with your keyboard or whatever um, is can trigger a representation in the game world, like jumping or you know, um, killing, you know, shooting or something like that. Um, whereas the other extreme with alternate reality games is that um, there is not that level of abstraction. What you do is actually is actually there. Um, and so yeah, so the, it was I was still doing spy stuff, but it was a shift in the in the different type of pervasive game and the way that I approached it. And I suddenly had to. Um, you know, use, use different techniques. So it was all about you know finding um, hiding places and and um, you know p- putting our um, our things all over the place. I did not take many photos during the game because we were so sort of ensconced with it. Um, but we had those sort of moments where, for instance, one of our bases we had hidden in the bushes when we went to go and um, put in put in the uh, secrets that we'd found. Um, a whole lot of police came off, and we thought. They're going to think we're hiding drugs. They're going to take us down. Um, but they just laughed. They were fine. Um, <laughs> it's not really spying. Just espionage.
4: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not covered by us.
0: Exactly. Um, and so in the end, um, our team won. We had the, the uh, most secrets, uh, which was wonderful. But, and, and at the end of the day, we did a, um, a debrief. I wonder who that is. Yeah, and so we were just uh, yeah, talking.
4: Conspicuous, yeah, conspicuous, that's right.
0: Um, and so then at the end, it's basically a debrief, talking about the mechanics of the game, and you know, possibly how we can improve it and things like that. Um, and for me, um, at the end of my sort of. Um, build up to the spy escapade just involved a leisurely walk home Mackenzie street yeah. Um, um, yeah, so basically at the end of my end of my spy day it was just a case of um, building up all this excitement to suddenly to playing a different type of uh, you know, frame of mind to at the end of the day not really being a spy again and walking home along the street. Mm. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
3: So, I mean, so we just have a, a, a few minutes. I'm really keen to ask that the obvious thing to ask from that is what's different between, you know, the real-life space of the game and the oh, real-life physical space of the game and the digital space of the video game. But I think there's so much that's different that the more interesting question is what stays the same?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because there's... There, when you talk about immersion and role-playing and things like that, you know, that... It was like I was fully immersed, you know, for instance, in the, the different type of game, the, you know, the, the Spies game. I was still immersed, but it just it required a shift, you know, in my mind, um, which was a different type of immersion to the one that I was building myself up for at the beginning of the day. Yeah. And, and, of course, you can, even though you have the extreme absc- abstraction of, you know, your digital games, yeah. there's still another, you know, yeah. it's another form of immersion that's there. Um, yeah, it's just it's just different types. Obviously, it's just uh, a different switch, and that's why I referred to the you know Lee stuff about mm. gameplay schemas and the sort of you know the frame of mind that you put in there. Mm. Um, so you can still have the same effects, mm. um, but you're mm. just yeah you're just putting a, a switch in your head in mm. terms of you know how how you're um, I- engaging and associating with that mm-hmm. world in that sense.
3: So so does it change the way that you? Um... I mean, obviously, the games are, 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 are designed specifically for their their um, their spaces in particular. But does it change things in that you're sort of appropriating a world rather than using a world that's been created specifically for the game?
0: In um, in the pervasive games, yeah, yeah, be, yeah, you're 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 setting it in the world that's that 's there you yeah. know um, that in the actual real world, as much as possible, and obviously there 's degrees of that, mm. um, and your the layer on top of that is is all in your mind, mm. um, and yeah the, the extreme of it with the alternate reality games is that. Um, is that things are actually staying as normal as possible you know Mm. so um you know so you you know that water represents water it doesn't represent red wine or poison you know it it actually operates the same except for you yeah (laughs) um but but yeah and so that's Mm. yeah that's that's one Mm. of the things i find there i don't know do you have
4: some thoughts yeah, it's, it's interesting you talk about does the real, using the real world make a difference? In, in a lot of tabletop role-playing games that are set in the contemporary world, like now, mm. that makes a big difference. <coughs> but If you play um, the World of Darkness series of games which are set basically in the real world but a darker version where there are vampires and werewolves secretly amongst us, mm. um, you, one of the great techniques for that is to use a real city. Because that you can go to any level of detail with that city and make it seem real mm. in the game, and I mean you're still imagining it around a table. Mm. But I mean, I ran a, a vampire game that was set in Paris. So I just bought all these Paris guidebooks and had maps and people would ask me, oh, I want to find a place to go. I'm like, okay, there's a bar called Blah on Blah Street. <laughs> that's real, isn't it? I could Google that. I'm like, yes, you could. Yeah. Um, it yeah. makes
0: it difficult. Um, it's, it is difficult as a designer when you're setting it in, in the actual real world because mm. then you're, you're, having, yeah, you're really constrained by what's already mm. out there and, mm. and the ways in which you know, people interact with it. Mm. Um, it is a huge constraint and that's why there's been a move with alternate reality games away from it actually needing to yeah, be right. that extreme
4: because
0: mm. um, you need you know need more freedom to actually play and create stuff
4: mm. i think what you should do though next time is just listen to an appropriate soundtrack as you're walking down the street Yes. i don't know that that freaks that freaked me out oh i
0: i did actually we i did actually note all the music that i was listening to to hype myself <laughs> out, but, um, but yeah i didn't mm. include that
3: Well that's terrific. Thanks. Thanks so much, Chrissy. We'll we'll throw to another track from Brazil, so thanks. Thanks very (laughs) much.
1: Clouds are only there in case we fall into the sky. Shoe laces tie us to the ground We float when they're ice Laces brown.
3: All right, so uh, Brennan, let's talk about um, Towards Dawn. Let's, I have a video mm-hmm. first, so to show show we're talking about. There's
5: like eight more minutes of that video, so I won't give you epileptic fits. Um, so some context for what that was. That was um, a project of mine I did called Towards Dawn, which is a blog and an experiment I did in Minecraft Um, for the one or two of you that might not know what Minecraft is. Minecraft is an indie game where you just have a world and you can just do whatever you want in that world. You can just go mining, take resources, and most people will build things in that world. Um, But I never really built anything. I always just would start a world, and these worlds are just randomly generated. Everyone's world is different. And I would just go exploring, find everything I can to find in that world, start a new one and do the same thing. And I didn't think about it for about three or four worlds. And then I thought, I could just go across that ocean and there will always be more world there. I don't need to start new ones. Because for worlds are just constantly generated the more you walk. So these worlds are just infinitely big. So I had the idea for a, an experiment then where I would just walk. I wouldn't build anything. I would just do what I enjoy doing in Minecraft, which is just seeing what's over there. So I decided to just walk east towards the sunrise which I later found out Notch had made north for sunrise, so I had to turn 90 degrees halfway through. But it was consistent over time. Um, So I started a blog, and I just walked east, and I didn't expect anyone at all to find that interesting. And a lot of people found it interesting. And um, rock, paper, shotgun linked to it, and a lot more people found it interesting. And then I kind of had to keep going. Um, So it... um, So I was trying to think about why people found it so interesting because anyone can just start a game of Minecraft and just start walking. And that's not special. Anyone can do that. But I thought what was special about it was that nobody else could see this world and that I was going somewhere no one had ever seen before and no one would probably see ever again and that people were interested in that even if they could do it themselves. It was just interesting to see somewhere no one had ever seen before. And it had a... um, the other thing that makes it kind of gave it a kind of gravity was that this wasn't just a camera floating over some random world it was if I died and I could die if I fell off a cliff or if a zombie got me at night because I didn't build my camp properly or if I um just fell into a pit of lava because I wasn't looking where I was going which nearly happened several times I would die and respawn right back at the start and certainly not be doing it again so there was this real real kind of um tenuous vulnerability to the project, which it could just end at any time, which is kind of a point I think I'd like to make about virtual worlds more generally, and I'm going to do this, I'm going to draw what I got out of Towards Dawn to what I think about virtual worlds broadly, which is that you don't just kind of fly around as a camera in virtual worlds. You have a body, even if you don't see it, and that world's going to do things to that body, like kill it if it jumps off a cliff. Um, or in something like, say, Assassin's Creed 2, if you're Ezio, like, you're going to understand that world differently than you would through what you can do through Nico Bellic's body in um, GTA 4 So, in Minecraft, you don't really have a character with a name or anything, and I just had the default skin. I never bothered making him look any, or her any different. Um, but it was still a body. I was just walking, and I could hear my feet fall all the time, so there was that kind of perspective thing happening. And yeah, so that gave the blog and the narr- a kind of narrative pressure where if I died, that was it. Like, it was just over. So I went on, and at first I was taking maybe 10 photos a day just of cool mountains or rivers or waterfalls that I would find. And since I started this project, when the game was still in alpha, the algorithms to generate the world were fairly rough, and there'd just be all kinds of awesomely glitchy um, landmasses, like just waterfalls floating in midair, and just um, perfectly flat um, areas. It got to a point where he updated to the beta version and the world algorithm just reset. So I came to a kind of cleave in the world where it was just a straight line and the new world started. So I kind of had to jump down off this sheer cliff into a river and you look back and mountains just kind of stopped and you could see kind of a honeycomb of caves underneath. It was a lava flow into the water and it looked amazing and it just was never meant to exist. So. As I went on, photos came less about the landmarks and more about showing every single thing that I saw. So after a while, I was taking maybe 50 photos a day instead of five. So it became less about postcards for my blog and more about this weird kind of cartography where I wanted people to know exactly how that world went together rather than just I walked for a while and saw this cool thing, which was made the post ridiculously large, and I think I capped a few people who read the entire thing in a few days. Um, Which, when that happened, and I realised how many photos I was taking and why I was taking them all, kind of realised there was something going on in Minecraft, and especially in Towards Dawn, or especially in Minecraft, that led me to do Towards Dawn, that had been happening for me in video games back to when I was playing Doom, when I was far too young to be playing Doom, (laughs) was that I had this entire 3D level I could explore, but I would just kind of stand on the edge and look out the window at whatever Martian moon I was on, at just these 2D mountains, and I can't remember how this happened, but a friend at school somehow convinced me it was a secret way to get out of the castle in Doom, and that there were forests and villages out there on Mars's moon for some reason. It never really made sense, but I had these fantasy imaginations of getting out of this castle and just walking. and as video games kind of became more and more about the broader world, I guess, you know, open world games became easier to do technolo- technologically, that Minecraft was kind of the ultimate realisation of that, just having this entire world to explore. So it's something like, because when I play games, I think of myself almost as a cartographer, I guess. Like, I'm not understanding for people that live there and stuff. Like, in, say... Skyrim and that kind of Tolkienistic understanding everything is there is awesome but also just knowing how all the bits of geography go together because you get this amazing feeling when you first start playing Skyrim or Fallout 3 or GTA 4 and you first exit the world and you're walking down a path to the first village because you still have to go there at that stage and the entire world is just a backdrop and you know one day you're going to understand all this but for that first moment it's just a path and this intoxicating sense of knowing that you don't know anything and that you are, in about 100 hours, you're going to know it so well that you'll walk down this path again and you won't even know it's the same path at first because the context of it has completely changed. So Minecraft, for me, was like this, I've written down here, endless cartographic drug where (laughs) um, pretty much that intoxicating feeling of having no idea where I am just kind of was perpetual and, like, just endless, endless worlds of just constantly being able to um, go somewhere new and contextualise that new place within every single pixel of new place I'd seen before that for like 60 days of my adventure. Mm. That's really all the notes I've written down.
3: Sorry, can you clarify how long it went for? Right. um, It went
5: for 60 in-game days, which is like 20 minutes a day, but the blog went for about... 18 months or so because I um Christ my fridge dry yeah. I um started in like early 2000 or late 2010 when the game was still really really new and I kind of rode the wave of popularity with Minecraft with a blog as well so and I ended it in was it last year? Mm. yeah mm. so like late 2011 and there were some pretty big gaps in there where I wasn't updating but A lot of people kept with it. And even if I did an update for six months, people were Mm. really, really interested and really wanted to go. And even to this day, there's people who just read the entire thing Mm. from start to finish in a day, Mm. which boggles my mind because I look at it and I see, there was a mountain, there was a waterfall, there was another mountain. I named this pig, then accidentally murdered him by knocking off a mountain. (laughs) Then I buried his pork chops in a chest. Um, Mm.
3: But yeah, people really got something out of that mm. when it kept going. So, mm. yeah. so how, how did the technology of the game impact on the, the kinds of worlds it was creating? Because so, the game was constantly being updated by its creators as you were yeah. going on this journey. It changed it fairly dramatically. Um, at first, there was only one
5: kind of world, just tree and grass and mountain and cave. Um, and then as I went on, as I said, there were big cleaves, and then there was, they added biomes, so forests and snow. So as I got further and further away from home, it kind of became more and more foreign. Mm. So that... And then eventually I ran into people, like when he updated it, so there were villages and people in it. So after I'd been walking all by myself for like 50 days or something, Mm. I saw a rooftop of a horizon and it was just the most amazing thing. And it's now these people just kind of just looking at me. Mm. And I spent that night indoors rather than in my little dirt hut that I built every night. Mm. to hide from the zombies and um yeah so it changed pretty dramatically and then it kind of changed not so much for the worse, but it got to a point where they kind of smoothed out all the glitches in the Mm. algorithms so there weren't i wasn't getting new amazing things anymore it was just just another forest just another swamp just another desert Mm. and that's when i decided to end it um i won't say how i ended it um (laughs) but um yeah, and then, because a lot of commenters were noticing too, mm. this is starting to get, not old, but we've seen this before. Mm. So it was kind of, got to a point where I was walking until I died and I wasn't dying. Yeah. So <laughs> mm. I kind of, I saw, in a sense, I saw everything there was to see, mm.
3: which was kind of nice. How strong a part does the sort of the, um, the journaling or sort of the, the narrative of, of mm. this journal play on on your exploration in this world?
5: I think it played a really big deal more after a a lot of people started reading it because it felt like there was this real pressure and it became this kind of permadeath experience or permanent death where when you play a game kind of like what you do in roguelikes where you play it when you're dead that's it Um, and I think Ben Abraham had done an experiment in Far Cry 2 just a bit earlier where if he died he was going to delete the game and he blocked that. So um, that kind of responsibility to a readership that mm. this was going to end when I just tripped into a pit of lava mm. or mm. didn't block up my hut properly and someone was going to kill me really um, kind of put a pressure on it and made mm. it really intense to play, more intense than Minecraft normally is. Mm. And then there was the more almost compulsively taking photos mm. um, for my readership, saying mm. I have to show them this and I have to show them what this looks like in relation to this stuff around it. Like I might find this weird monument in the middle of a valley. Mm. So I had to get the um, monument and the valley all in the one photo. And there were some times where I would waste, waste, spend half a day setting up the right photo of a um,
3: particular piece of landmass before I could move on because mm. I had to show people what this looked like. Mm. And so the other thing was is that you quite literally sort of inscribed your journey into the world by placing signs. I did, yes. um, Starting on
5: the second day or so I would just put a sign down and write day two or day three on it. Mm. And when I ended I uploaded the map online somewhere and it was several hundred meg by the time I finished. This was generating more data as I went. Um, In the hope that someone else would play it start from the beginning and try to Mm. use my count and my signs to find where I went mm. no one's told me i have done that yet but mm. hopefully someone did because that would be nice yeah. or went in the other direction and right. yeah. found out even more about our world that I never would have seen mm.
3: so the question that I've um, always wanted to ask you about this <laughs> mm. um, and I don't know what the answer will be have you no. ever read any um, new world travel writing because this is what this reminds me of is the sort of mm. colonialist urge to that reminds me of something I wanted to mention and completely
5: forgot which was how Kieran Gillen Mm. um, who used to be a games journalist at Rock Paper Shotgun, now he writes comic books I think, Mm. in his manifesto for new games journalism called it he said games writing has to be I forget his exact words but travel writing for imaginary places Mm. like you have to write about video games as though you're travelling somewhere that doesn't actually exist and it's right, Like we talk about immersion and all that accurately, but these places don't exist. They're mm. purely just on a flat screen and in our heads. Um, and we have to kind of... But we still feel like we're walking through that. So it is very much travel writing. Mm. And I think the vast majority of games writing is in some way travel writing. Mm. Um, it's really about moving through a subjective, embodied viewpoint through a world. Mm. Like, and it would feel vastly different if you were just... A camera that you could move in every direction, just looking at that world, Mm. would be a vastly less interesting story Mm. to write
3: home about. So, So. all all games writing is um, postcards from imaginary worlds. Pretty much, (laughs) 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 Uh, um, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. All right. On that corny note, we might throw to (laughs) uh, another song from Brazil. So, thanks very much, (laughs) Brendan. Okay, so that brings us to the final part of our evening, which is the audience Q and A. So I think um, I'm not sure. if Yep, there are some microphones roving around. So if you've got a question, perhaps um, put up um, a hand, and a microphone will come to you.
6: Oh. <laughs> Uh, My question's for Brendan. How does your experience in Minecraft compare to your experience in Just Cause
5: 2? That's an interesting one. Um, Just Cause 2 is very interesting since it's so easy to move around. Um, For those that don't know, Just Cause 2 is essentially um, the antithesis almost of Grand Theft Auto 4 where you can just go anywhere, do anything. It's this massive... Um, island, nation which has deserts, mountains everything, it's just a playground and you can just move around so easily for grappling hook and a helicopter and anything you want Um, I guess it changes dramatically simply because you can move around so easily what Scorpio can do is so different that you're very rarely experiencing that minute, specific detail of a spot, I guess it's more like going on a holiday somewhere the travel writing thing again and just looking at the sights rather than walking around and seeing everything because um, you start to that and sometimes I stop there and I'll just like jump out of a burning helicopter and grapple onto the hut in, in the middle of nowhere and it's this nice little serene village just in the middle of nowhere and I kind of realise it just goes through it does have that really nice little detail and you just never notice it because half the time you're Goku way up in the air just never touching the ground so um. Yeah, because of who I am in it, it changes dramatically. It's a simple answer.
3: Well, I have a question while um, perhaps we're waiting. Um, so a lot of the games that we keep coming back to to talk about this sort of stuff are very, um, like, um, fancy. I mean, you've been playing Skyrim. Is there a reason that we keep coming back to particular genres in terms of exploring space and, and geography and um,
4: open worlds in games? Yeah, well, it's interesting because I didn't really show any of the fantasy landscapes in Skyrim, but they certainly do exist. You go into the caves underground and you'll see these you know giant, weird, iridescent mushrooms and there 's there 's a whole section where you go and there 's just a, a whole hollow in the world where there 's a giant tree which is sort of like the personification of the life force of the world in a way mm. and stuff like that so but a large part of it is uh, again it 's sort of the the magical medieval europe uh, paradigm is mm. that that 's sort of this idealized time when good and evil were easy to understand it 's kind of the same kind of reason why westerns I think are popular which is why it's kind of surprising that there's less games about westerns but Red Dead Redemption has that kind of same open world feel and it captures that same kind of idea that mm. I, kind of, I know what this is about because mm. I've seen this archetype before and I, and I think that's partly what it is, is to that world lends itself to that archetype of the, the conflict that mm. we enjoy
3: mm. Mm. and I mean, I mean that perhaps goes back to what you were saying as well, Christy, in terms of what we bring to these worlds and these experiences as well. Mm. Um, Obviously that plays an incredibly important part in in ARGs.
0: Yep. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, with ARGs you're using the, I guess, you know, the tropes of your own world, Mm. um, whereas the other ones are using tropes of constructed worlds. um, But they're both familiar.
5: Mm. I guess the fantasy and sci-fi rocks up so much because you want to explore worlds, other worlds you remember exploring, other ones completely unlike mm. your own world, and fantasy and sci-fi are kind of the easy ways to make a world unlike your own world. Mm. But it's interesting then when you have the opposite, like Rockstar's games, like Grand Theft Auto 4 or Red Dead Redemption, which are really more reimaginings of this world. Mm. So um, Liberty City has to be one of my favourite. Imaginary worlds to explore just because of how much is happening in it. And I went there before I went to New York. And then tra- walking around Manhattan was just the most surreal experience. The <laughs> like, why we get a Life building have an M instead of a G? Or I'll be like, oh, this is Chinatown. That must be Little Italy over yeah. there. Yep. Um,
0: There's also so. the economic consideration of mm-hmm. these sorts of worlds that need to attract a lot of players. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, you know, it's the same like, you know, you pull on genres and tropes that mm. will bring in a lot of people. Mm. So, you know, mm. there's also that aspect to it too.
3: Did, did we have a? Yeah, okay, we've got a couple now. Cool.
7: Hi. Um, I'm curious as to what you guys think of... Um, there's something that I've noticed recently, and that is and Brendan's example is true, but more recently with uh, Day Z and games like that, people are starting to tell stories about what's happened to them, you know, obviously with Daisy, I'm referring to what happened to Adam Rutch that sort of swept like wildfire across the internet, mm. um, but we haven't really seen that before, we haven't seen these organic stories growing out of artificial worlds, and I'm just interested to hear you guys comment on that
3: if I can jump in just for a second in a a way we kind of have like um, you mentioned before with the Doom example that sort of urban myth of of thinking that maybe there's stuff that that you can access that you actually can't Mm -hmm. access, I mean there's a classic example of the, um, I forget the name of the game, it's like a a tank game and the the myth was that at the very end of the game there was like a castle that you could reach and um, yeah yeah. (laughs) (laughs) that game (laughs) It's and it's obviously completely false.
7: Well, yeah. I'm actually I'm referring to the, what really actually happened mm. to Adam. Yeah, sure, and, sure. And that yeah. was a scenario that, you know, the developers hadn't really envisaged at all. Mm. It was, mm. like, it wasn't even... It was a mod based on a game, based, you know, that, and this, this thing happened that no-one could have foreseen mm. happening. Mm. And it took on this, this well... World of its own, this life of its own. Mm. I think that's really interesting that the clay, like people, were moulding this this mm. engine to do what they wanted it to do yeah. outside of the developer's original scope.
5: Mm. I think it's two things. I think on one side, it's just easier to find these stories now mm. than it used to be. Um, like it is so much easier to spread. Like Adam's story when he got taken as a slave, and that. But also, I think, maybe... Should we give some
4: context
3: for that? Right. Though? Oh, <laughs> yeah.
4: So if you don't know what DayZ is, it's, a, it's, a, it's an indie mod for an older game that you can get on Steam. It's cheap. Um, designed by a guy from New Zealand. And in the game, it's a zombie survival game, but the zombies are not really much of a threat. They're pretty slow. You can avoid them easily. So it's all about your interaction with the other players who are other survivors. And there's limited resources. You don't have so much food and drink and bullets and cars and you fight over them in the game yeah
5: and what happened to adam was he was walking down a road and a bunch of people who were self-chosen bandits um took him as a slave so
3: he was sh- he was unarmed at this he stage, was unarmed
5: yeah. and they just came before their machine guns had found and they shot him in the leg and then healed him and said okay now you're our slave and he was kind of tweeting on his phone on the side like help taking a slave um i'm in this area And all of Twitter just started following as they forced him to go and do things. Um, But yeah, I think there are more games that exist now that kind of allow that, They don't have their own narrative, which are also great. I love games that do have their narrative, but games that don't have narrative kind of demand that you put your own narrative into it. And then you just want to tell people that story and people want to hear those stories. And I think it's like my own personal interesting games writing is that that's what like games writing is better when it's more specific and more focused on the individual actual experience rather than broad claims so those individual stories that individual people
4: have is just far more interesting to read I do, you, do you get that sort of thing with ARGs because I know that th- that's something that's a huge part of the role playing like tabletop role playing if you go to a convention you play games with people um, particularly when you get to the awards section at the end and people are accepting awards and they start telling the story of what mm-hmm. happened in the game. And some people are interested, but usually we would shout anecdotes and they'd get off the stage. But, um, <laughs> but, but everybody has those stories about what happened. And interestingly, in a role-playing game, a tabletop role-playing game, it's about the interaction between the players and the non-player characters who are still agents in the game because they're portrayed by the person running the game, by a person. So it's interactions between different people. And in DayZ and, um, and a lot of those games those stories emerge from interactions between players, not between players in the world. Do you get that sort of thing with ARGs as well?
0: Yes. Um, yes, you do, you do get people sort of relaying their individual stories. Um, but, yeah, no, I mean, ARGs aren't as pretty as, as, you know, as, other, as, as other games. So you don't necessarily have a lot of screenshots or videos or anything like that. It's more of a... It's more of a narrative um, and when you have things like interactions, you know, via social media or email, like particularly character interactions, um, those are the ones that, that spur the most sort of discussions and live events where people are talking about their experience in the live event and sharing that there. Um, because what often happens is only a small amount of the player base can actually experience certain things. Mm-hmm. And so it's the onus is on them to share what actually happened, not just in terms of sharing the narrative, but in the terms of passing on what was revealed from that. Um, that's, that's, that's a common... It's a common thing that, yeah, it's like if, if you're actually engaging with a character or doing a live event or uncover a clue, it's your responsibility to share it with everyone else,
3: mm-hmm.
0: to progress the game forward for everyone else.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. So I think we've got time for uh, still a couple more. There's just one over there. The,
5: how does the transient <laughs> nature of um, some of the worlds that you explore, whether it be a time-location-based ARG or Brendan's self-imposed permadeath rule, kind of reminds me antithetically of Chain World, um, affect your relationship with that landscape and affect how you feel after it's ended?
0: I missed the, the first part of the question. Sorry, so
5: it's um, the, the time-based nature, the no- knowledge that this world will end and you'll never be able to go back to that particular world, unlike other games, for example, where oh, you, right. you know, go back to Skyrim and it's yep. you know, large but the same.
0: Play once, yeah. Um, Do you want me to go first?
5: Oh, I have thoughts. I can go forward first. Okay, you
0: go.
5: I think that's a really interesting um, comparison between um, augmented reality games or alternative reality games and permadeath. What's the actual term? Two different things. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I don't know the terms. Um, Those games, like that spy party one, not spy party, the spy game. And um, permadeath is that, yeah, the world is over when you leave it. Um, For me, yeah, it dramatically changed my spirit my connection to that world compared to um, any other world where if I died I'd respawn um, and even after Notch added beds so that if you died you respawned in a bed I made it a rule that I wouldn't use them um, because that would be cheating and I'd feel tempted to start from that place so by the time beds got implemented I'd already kind of decided this was permadev so I had to keep going with that so it changed my um, how I felt with that world very differently. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting, and this will segue into you, um, how we choose to participate in these roles. Um, mm-hmm. Same with games like the Spy game where you you know, you know, kind of choose to kind of submit to the world of that game, even if you, it is possible to act with outside, outside of those rules you choose to make believe and to participate within it. Mm. And I find it's that interesting.
0: It's opt-in, it's opt-in yeah. Yeah. The, um, yeah, there's definitely... Um, yeah, I mean, with um, alternate reality games, they're usually... You, you experience it once and that's it. You can never play them again. Um, and you don't experience death in alternate <laughs> reality yeah. games, of course. Um, that would be too real, but the... <laughs> The thing that you do is, <laughs> is uh, th- there are yeah, extreme consequences, therefore. Um, so, you know, in one game, uh, J- uh, Jan, Libby, Jan Libby's game, I can't remember the name of it, but basically the, um, the players were meant to go, go along and um, actually uh, meet up with the character. Um, and the players actually didn't turn up. Um, and it was a character that they all loved, but for some reason they didn 't turn up, um, and so she actually killed off that character um, as a, in response to yes yeah, you know them making that decision to actually not turn up. There are other ones that, you know other times where you know according to your behavior, you might get sidelined and not be privy to a whole lot of information so there are, yeah there are you know um, huge consequences and and yeah, you know once you do an action it 's not a case of like oh, I can undo that, everyone knows that action and and you know, the the, um, the game responds appropriately and that's it. You can't, we can't reverse anything. Mm. Yeah.
3: There was a question up the back.
6: Um, yeah, I just wanted to ask about... Uh, I, remember, I believe nine or ten years ago, I think it was uh, Kieran Gillen talked about new games journalism and about how we should experience... Uh, when we talk about games and reviews or any criticism in general, we should experience by talking about exactly what you've done with the Minecraft, going through, like, a personal account of how you went through it and not just talk about it with a checklist of sound, video, all those sorts of things. Um, I guess more recently with, like, Daisy and all these other games that are coming out at the moment and the coverage of them, we're we're seeing new games journalism in the wider internet, mostly probably from the blogosphere. But um, do you see, uh, you know, a wider adoption of that into normal games journalism or, you know, what, what could come from that now?
5: I think absolutely. I think new games journalism as a thing isn't even really a thing anymore because it's become far more ubiquitous in just games journalism generally. I'm not sure if you'd agree or not, but um, yeah, more. Uh, sure. Sorry, <laughs> no, sure. it's about halfway for a sentence. Certainly um, at Kill
6: Screen, but not in a lot of other areas. Yeah, though. but I think
5: yeah, it's not everywhere, but it is getting more widespread. That focus on the specific. Experience um, that new games journalism rightly called for. Um, I think something important to note that Kieran called for, and that that I think a lot of bad new games journalism misses, is that the worlds are imaginary and there's stuff happening on this side of the screen as well. So, like in my Minecraft blog, I wouldn't hide the fact that I was holding down W or that, I don't know, another window would pop up because I forgot to close a program and I would get hit by a zombie because of that. Like, you don't... I think good new game journalism doesn't hide the fact that there is another world mashing into this world, a lot like alternative reality games, really. Yeah. But there's an
4: interesting parallel with that. And I, I keep talking about um, tabletop games, but I think that's because, particularly when you talk about role-playing games and computers, that's where they come from. And, th- and there's also been a shift in the way those are written about in the books when they're published, in that there's a lot more what they call actual play accounts in the books now which tells the story of the characters but they'll also explicitly also tell the story of the players Hmm. so you get both accounts together so you get the imaginary world what's happening in the imaginary world and at the same time what's happening with the players and in fact in some of the um the white wolf games that i mentioned earlier they would do it as a comic strip like as a, a cartoon and they would do uh, the cartoon on one side would just be the cartoon, which would be the players, and they'd have speech balloons and they'd be punching, you know, monsters or whatever they were doing. And then on the other side, they'd have the same cartoon, but they'd sort of fade it into the background and have text over the top of it describing what the players were doing. So the player decided they wanted to do this. The storyteller or dungeon master said, "Okay, great. We'll then roll these dice. This is the result they got, and so this is how much damage they did." And you'd see that direct translation from, as you're saying, the same sort of thing what was happening on either side of the screen, so to speak, but without a screen.
5: Yeah, it's a real temptation in games writing to just talk about that side, which isn't the whole story, like, it's so messy across it.
0: In the uh, transmedia design documentation um, that often used, you know, we basically chart the journey of the, you know, the different types of behaviours of the different types of players, and sometimes that can be a comic and... Um, but that's crucial to communicating what it actually is as opposed to just what happens in the world.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. To, to go back to um, the new journalism stuff, though, um, I, I, I think it's um, quite cyclical as well. Like, it ebbs and it flows as to how much influence it has. And I think that in terms of where it is now, um, I think we've reached a point where a lot of journalists have encountered writing influenced by the original sort of new Games journalism writing without necessarily knowing what new games journalism is mm. or even where that's come from, um, which is a whole other set mm. of you know problems and issues. I think a um, important split too. Well, it's
5: it's not a clean split, but between games journalism and games criticism, which new games journalism right. yeah. has really kind of found home more in that kind of. I got this meaning out of this game instead of this game is coming out, these are its features, which, mm. at the end of the day, is why a lot of people read games journalism. They just want to know what's coming out yeah. so they can have the experiences and write criticism and new games journalism about it. Sure. So, <laughs> so there's different ways to write about games and different reasons to do yeah. it, which all often gets just kind of lumped under games journalism. Exactly. I mean, uh, would you necessarily describe towards Dawn as journalism? I wouldn't, no. Mm. For me, it's... I'm not even, well, I guess it is criticism, but for me it was just a blog. (laughs) Um,
3: I'm not sure what to call it. If anybody has a really quick question, otherwise we might have to leave it there. We're all good. One final, yeah, David? Statement. Yeah, we can capture it for the audio. Uh, I
6: was just going to make a point about the New Games journalism thing and travel writing, like an Mm. interesting anecdote about travel writing. In the 19th century, when it was being formalised and really pushed as a, as a kind of um, profession. A lot of the key figures in travel writing were actually um, just, you know, in their apartment in Paris or in London and they would take a shitload of opium and, like, oh, yes. dress up in clothes that they'd had imported from the country and just make the whole thing up mm. because...
5: So just like games journalism. Because,
6: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like... Um, they really understood that what the audience wanted was this writing that that had this feeling of movement, this kind of unencumbered, fantastical other world. And I think that, um, you know, when New Games Journalism came along and it proposed its manifesto, and people like Kieran and Stikaran and everybody was kind of kicking off, they were really pushing against an open door because there was such a demand for that kind of unencumbered, mm. more lyrical writing that just charted a space rather mm. than yeah, listing feature sets and mm. doing that. Mm. Mm. Mm.
3: Well, uh, I think that brings us to about the end. So if you'll join me in thanking um, very much Brendan Kier, Christy Dina, um, Ben McKenzie, and Zeal. Thanks
0: very much. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to Acme channel and the Acme website.